This is Things We Do Not Speak Of. It is a podcast about what can happen when you go out looking for monsters and actually find them. It contains adult and forbidden language, disturbing themes, and potentially dangerous speculations about reality. We take no responsibility for any injury, cognitive disturbance, poltergeist activity, or supernatural attachment that might result from listening to this program or attempting any of the actions discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Make sure you want to know before you find out. Listen, we need to talk because I'm frustrated and bored and I've been lately struggling with something that has put me at kind of a crossroad with what I want to do with this podcast. Here's the thing. I lied to you guys and I lied to myself. I lied about not having a single fuck left to give. I had one one solitary fuck. And for the last few weeks, I've been trying to figure out how to murder it. How to take my beloved fuck and douse it with gasoline and give it the Viking funeral it deserves to get it out of my way so that I can move on to create something that actually feels rewarding and important to me. For these last four episodes, I have essentially been reading to you guys chapters out of a book that I wrote. If you've been following along, you know that it started out as a book about places in North Carolina that were named after or associated with the devil. That project I worked on for approximately two years. I wrote pages of copy and did lots of research in addition to taking multiple field trips to physically investigate the sites. I had folders on my computer filled with copies of articles and notes both from online sources and from physically traveling around to libraries and photographing primary sources. You know, old books, newspaper clippings, maps, that kind of thing. During the course of those two years, I experienced a quantity of disturbing activities that I still cannot fully explain. As I've told you before, I was left with the impression straight up, that I had had a first-hand experience with some kind of ultra-terrestrial force, an ultra-terrestrial force that actively attempts, for a variety of possible reasons, to fuck with and even destroy the lives of human beings. Sometimes it happens to dummies like myself who ask for it, but most often it seems to be completely random. Part of the fundamental nature of this phenomenon seems to be its complete and total dishonesty. The annals of paranormal literature are full of stories that illustrate how having a contact experience with the unexplained can drive the contactee batshit nuts. When he was working on the Mothman prophecies, John Keel got wrapped up in contactee drama, experiencing mysterious communications from alleged space people, fake prophecies, and weird electronic harassment. If you know about the Mothman story, you know about Woody Derenberger, who happened upon the supposed extraterrestrial Indrid Cold on a lonely West Virginia back road and had his whole life disrupted by getting to find out more than he ever really wanted to know about the planet Lanulos. Poor old Woody got taken up in the UFO, and I think he might have even lost some of his precious bodily fluids in the exchange. Indrid Cold was encountered by multiple witnesses and spun a whole fantastical story about himself before abruptly vanishing, leaving Derenberger a confused shell of his former self whose family had abandoned him and who faced such harassment and ridicule from his fellow citizens that he eventually moved away and lived under a fake name. The philosopher and futurist Robert Anton Wilson, during a self-led quest for answers about the nature of reality, was led to believe that he was in communication with beings from Sirius. He documents these experiences in a series of books called Cosmic Trigger, and I cannot recommend these books highly enough if you're into that kind of stuff, and most especially 
if you're the kind of person who's going to persist in going out into the world looking for that stuff. Not to be dramatic, but it's entirely possible that the fact that I'm still alive rests upon the decision 25 years ago to purchase a copy of that book from the 25 cent rack at my local used bookstore. Wilson says, in researching occult conspiracies, one eventually faces a crossroads of mythical proportions called chapel perilous in the trade. You come out the other side, either a stone paranoid or an agnostic. There is no third way. His ultimate conclusion from his experiences was that reality is distressingly malleable and subject to alteration due to the will of the observer. And therefore, it was best to approach life from a perspective he called model agnosticism, to be open to the possibility that all sorts of things might be true, but to refrain from ever investing too much unquestioning belief in anything. The closest we seem to have come to any kind of unified field theory of the paranormal comes from researchers like John Keel and Jacques Vallée and Jim Brandon, Valet researched the UFO and contactee phenomenon for years before coming to the conclusion that all UFO and paranormal experiences come from the same source. In books like Passport to Magonia, he lays out compelling evidence that the phenomenon warps itself to best take advantage of the cultural climate it's in. Once it was seen as the fae or the devil, now it's the little green men in the shining saucers or the grinning guys in flannel shirts. Or that thing in your closet. In works like The Eighth Tower and Disneyland of the Gods, Keel addresses the superspectrum, the variety of actual physical stimulus that exists in the world that humans are just not genetically equipped to perceive, and the potential that that blindness and malleability can be used against us. Charles Fort famously quipped that humans are property. Keel hints that we're just cattle, a food source for something beyond our capacity to understand, something that we can't even see unless it wants us to. In his book, The Rebirth of Pan, American 40 Honor researcher Jim Brandon refers to it as the American Earth Spirit, a kind of natural force possessing an intelligence, sometimes sublime, sometimes malicious, a sentient, omnipresent facet of the planet itself which has cohabitated with and fed upon humanity since the dawn of time a spirit coiling and roiling in the bowels of the earth he writes radiating out from the mouths of caves flashing and grinding like a slow motion lightning along fault lines sprinkling out with the water from springs and wells pulsing like heartbeats along certain barely recognized runways across the land the same phenomenon with a million masks. It's here with us, stronger in some places than others, seemingly drawn most to places that humans think are cursed, but also to places where terrible things have happened, and strangely enough, also to places like lovers' lanes and parks and trailer parks. I wish I was kidding. And every once in a while, just boom, right there in the middle of the random suburbs, hiding behind the dumpster there at GameStop. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm just saying it's possible. Something is out there happening to people. Over and over, random encounters with this phenomenon lead to a predictable set of behaviors. The benevolent aliens from Lanulos or Venus or the Pleiades or the ascended Tibetan masters or the desperate time travelers or, or whatever deliver messages about the need for world peace, the need to care for the planet, the need to destroy all nuclear weapons. They take contactees up on fantastic voyages, promise them fame and happiness, make prophecies and give dire warnings about disasters that nine times out of ten are completely fictional. One day you're just a regular Joe driving to your second shift factory job. Then you see a bright flash of light on a dark country road and you get introduced to the little men from Orion's Belt. Next thing you know, you've changed your name to Rainbow Starfish, divorced your wife, left your family, and are living in a pyramid in the middle of the Mojave, waiting on the aliens to roll up in the mothership. And they are 
ghost in your ass. Harder than a tender fuckboy two weeks before Valentine's Day. Embarrassing. So why? Why would any kind of intelligent ultra-terrestrial being want to interact with us like that? Sorry to say, but humanity is objectively pretty dumb and not very nice. So... If the alien's cosmic agenda is to save the planet, seems like that agenda would be better served by some kind of direct intervention up to and including exterminating us all like fleas. Better than it would be by randomly contacting individual humans and making them act like crazy Old Testament prophets. Even when I was a child obsessed by the paranormal, I was never much interested in the idea of UFOs or aliens. Not like the research wasn't compelling. Not that I didn't think the vastness of space might contain other living species, just that if they were smart enough to master space travel, they were probably smart enough to ride by this bitch with the doors locked. Look, kids, that's Earth. They still solve their disagreements by killing the shit out of one another, and all their water is poison. Make sure you roll them windows up. I couldn't wrap my mind around why aliens would want to snatch people from highways or their bedroom, suck them up into weird laboratories, and stick needles in them. Even after it happened to me, I still couldn't wrap my mind around it, but we'll get to that. I've interviewed lots of people over the years who've claimed to see UFOs or to have had interactions with seemingly alien beings. Privately, I always attributed their experiences to hypnagogic hallucination and misidentification of aircraft or weather phenomenon. I still think that's probably 75% of it. The world is a weird fucking place, and humans have always tended to give supernatural importance to things that they don't understand. When I was, I don't know, seven, my great-grandpa, my papa Bemis, and I used to like watching thunderstorms on his porch. This used to piss off my mama because she'd survived a tornado as a little girl, and she spent all thunderstorms sitting on the floor of the inner hallway right by the cellar door, just in case. But we were relatively safe under there. It's not like he had me out in the backyard under a plastic tarp. It was a big brick and concrete porch with the whole second floor of the house as a roof. And it was fun to me to be able to watch the wind and the rain and the lightning from a safe distance. I'm 44 years old and I still do it. And if I die getting struck by lightning watching a thunderstorm on a good porch, oh well, I had a good run. One day we were out on the porch watching it storm and the lightning struck this big old oak tree that was down by the barn. It was tremendously loud and bright and it scared the dog shit out of both of us. And the lightning ran down the tree and along one of the roots and came out of the ground and rolled along the ground like a ball for I'd say, I don't know, five feet. Papa Bemis and I were both like, wow, that was awesome. We saw ball lightning. There was even a hole in a furrow in the ground where it had come out. We found it the next day. The tree eventually died, so that sucked, but I was excited to have been witness to this really unusual but totally scientific phenomenon. Right up until a couple years later when I told my 8th grade science teacher about it and he laughed at me and told me ball lightning isn't real, it's just a myth. I was even then enough of an asshole to be like, well, that's just your opinion, man. And I was the one who got detention. Imagine my surprise when I got to college and took a meteorology class and asked about it and had my professor tell me that while we don't completely understand the mechanism of how it exists, ball lightning exists. Here's another weird one for you. Remember last episode when I told you guys about the mound in the woods behind where I grew up and how it was eventually bulldozed to put in a solar farm? Well, while my parents still live there, once the solar farm was installed, they repeatedly saw weird lights in the sky. My dad even got it on video one time. These were obviously some kind of natural phenomenon. I believe in UFO circles, they're called Japanese lanterns. They were red balls of light that seemed to rise up out of the woods in the direction of the solar farm. They made a hissing, crackling sound, almost like a firework, and they would eventually just dissipate as they rose up into the sky. They were not emergency flares, at least not any kind that I've ever seen. I mean, I'm not a flare expert or a scientist, but it seems to me like some kind of buildup of energy releasing, static electricity maybe? They would only be seen when there was either a storm off in the distance or right after it had stormed. It reminds me of all the folkloric variations of poor guy got hit by a train and now he's out with his lantern looking for his missing head that exists to explain railroad-related spook lights all over the United States. There's one of those like right by my house. It's called the Vanderlight. 
that story claims that Archer Matthews, the station master, tripped and fell off the platform and was knocked unconscious and subsequently decapitated by the arriving train. I once almost broke my neck playing Archer Matthews in Haunted House. It's pretty difficult to come stomping down a flight of dark stairs when you don't have a head, but all my attempts to see the Vanderlight out in the field were a failure. Until... I was driving home from a friend's house late one night and I had to cross the railroad tracks, maybe 200 yards from where the legend said poor Archer met his grim fate, and there it was. A blue-white light, skimming along the tracks, bobbing slightly back and forth. It looked exactly like my personal observation of ball lightning. I stopped my car right there on the railroad crossing, which is dangerous and stupid, so don't do it, and I tried to get film or video of this thing, but it was like trying to use your iPhone to take a picture of an eclipse, like it wouldn't even show up. So all I could do was just watch it float away. Again, I'm not a scientist, but it had been storming that night, and those train tracks are still very heavily used. So is it some kind of electricity that builds up on the tracks, on the metal rails, and when the conditions are just right, it releases little balls of plasma? Is that even possible? I'm sure somebody out there knows better than I do and can tell me, so please do. Why the fuck are we even taking this detour about spook lights? Stick with me. That last night of the first field trip, the trip where I saw that white thing in the woods at Devil's Tramping Ground, we went to the Wiseman's View Overlook on the edge of the Linville Gorge Wilderness to look for the brown mountain lights. If you don't already know, the brown mountain lights are a fairly well-known spook light phenomenon that happens across a certain mountain range in North Carolina. We talked a little bit last episode about some of the folklore associated with the place. They're a real thing, and they're very cool. If you get the chance to go see them, you absolutely should go. Just don't make a mess up there at the Overlook, and watch out for weirdos. Because I grew up near there and went to school near there, I had seen the brown mountain lights a few times already. It was a fairly common pastime amongst my college friend group to go up to the Wise Men's View Overlook and just sit around shooting the shit. And maybe every third time you'd go, you'd be rewarded with seeing one or two little lights. I always figured that they were a natural phenomenon, the ones that I had seen always seemed to behave that way, very organic. They'd just kind of pop up on the top of the ridge, bounce around, and then eventually float up into the sky and disappear. That bobbing back and forth motion that they have, that all the spook lights seem to have in UFO circles, they call it falling leaf motion, because that's pretty much exactly how it looks. Something else about the brown mountain lights, apparently they're a real bitch to photograph. I think ASU has possibly the only footage of them, and it took them five years of keeping a camera running constantly to capture it, and honestly, at this point, it may have been debunked already. Nobody really knows what they are, but lots of people have seen them. That night at the Overlook, we saw one, but it was a doozy. It started out bobbing along the ridge, just like whatever normal might be for a spook light. But when it rose up into the air, instead of just gradually going out, it flashed brighter. And then it was a triangular craft, black with little white lights at each point. It flew over our heads and out of sight way faster than any airplane should have been able to. Obviously, we were both excited and flabbergasted. We stayed all night and we saw what we thought were a bunch more anomalous lights. And from that point on, the focus of the book and the research shifted. Because holy shit, y'all, Brown Mountain, that motherfucker is a rabbit hole. I'm talking secret underground cave base, alien mummies, tunnels, fucking goblins. So many people have fallen down that rabbit hole and written about it and made documentaries and podcasts and content about it. Joshua Warren, Tim Beckley, those guys are essentially what I would consider authorities on the ridiculous high strangeness associated with Brown Mountain. If you're in the mood for some real good cheese, you can check out the TV series Hellier, which also contains a lot of in information and references about Brown Mountain. When I watched that for the first time, there were some parts of it that I had a sick, spinny feeling of deja vu in my guts over because of those synchronicities. Some of them were real familiar. Synchronicities will fuck you up, man. Of course, it's all bullshit. 
in it. Two people, both of us, saw that craft. I don't know what it was. If I had to guess, I'd say it was some kind of military whatever the fuck. I live next to a giant army base, and I know they got some weird shit in there. So where did it come from? What was the deal with the light that seemed to have materialized into it? Was that all completely coincidental? I am telling you that I have no fucking idea, and I've come to make peace with the possibility that I will never have an answer for sure. I can tell you this, though. I have crawled all over the Pisgah National Forest, the Linville Gorge Wilderness. I would go back there tomorrow and poke around some more because it is one of my favorite places on the planet Earth. I even have the GPS coordinates of a certain alleged, possibly hidden cave base entrance on Brown Mountain. But it's a very challenging hike that would be really strenuous and super stupid for your goth nana to attempt all by herself. And I have yet to find another person who isn't scared to go with me. So what happened after we saw the craft? We turned the focus of our project towards Brown Mountain and the UFO angle. And through field work, we determined that, other than the triangular craft we saw, all of the anomalous lights we'd witnessed at Wiseman's View were able to be attributed to mundane human causes. ATV headlights and colored hikers' headlamps, mostly, but also uh, synchronized fireflies. Those guys are awesome. It's disappointing, but it happens. And if you're truly investigating something, you have to accept that a large portion of the time, whatever's happened is, is going to be completely explainable by non-supernatural means. By that part of the investigation, we were both so frazzled and confused and existing with no sleep and being fucked with in weird ways by things. Things that love to fill humans' minds with straight-up nonsense. Hundreds of cases of contactees being fed steaming heaps of bullshit and getting themselves into a real sad state about it. Cognitive dissonance is a real thing, you know? If you believe something so hard it's become part of you, part of your identity even, finding out what you believe to be true really isn't true can be upsetting, to put it mildly. It resulted in a disagreement between us, and Z declared that they were done with the project and revoked their permission for any of their material to be used. They basically told me, fuck off, and vanished. But here's the thing. The phenomenon I was experiencing didn't stop just because they flaked out. I was still dealing with sleep disturbances, sleep paralysis, poltergeist activity, and weird electronic glitches. And suddenly, I had no one to even communicate with about it. The frustration of being able to completely make sense of it all was now compounded because I couldn't express what was happening to me. I knew my friends and family were worried, but that they had no idea what was really going on, and I could not tell them. If I even tried to scratch the surface, I could tell by the uncomfortable response of whoever I was talking to that I was giving off serious this bitch needs a grippy sock vacation vibes and I needed to pull myself together. Nobody was going to believe me, and I had very little proof. I should stress that I'm not blaming anybody, and I'm not accusing anybody. In stressful situations, when you're pushed to the mental and physical limit, things can be said in anger that aren't meant. Z was pretty adamant that if I spoke out publicly about any of the events of the devil trip at all, they would be very upset. My files, a huge chunk of them, just disappeared from my computer and my Google Drive. I told you, I think these things can fuck with electronics. I have bad fucking luck with electronics. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard a genius at the Genius Bar say, uh, I've never seen one do this before, I could afford to keep the good Apple Care. These days I keep my iPad in airplane mode and I write things out longhand in notebooks. I had wasted two years of my life putting work into a project that I was deeply invested in. I had invited something into my life that I could not explain or control, or pass off completely as some kind of mental breakdown, no matter how hard I wished it could just be that easy. I was metaphorically balls deep in Chapel Perilous, and I could either let it destroy me or I could keep pulling the fucking thread and follow it out. Either way, the shit was happening. 
So that's what the fuck I did. I dug myself back out of the heaping high strangeness shit heap that I had stupidly face planted into. And I did my best to pull the little kernels of truth out with me when I did it. When you're dealing with entities that are dishonest and people who are dishonest, it's even harder to know what truth even means. From that first few nights after I got home from that first road trip, I don't think I had a night's sleep that wasn't interrupted at least once. It started like a flashbulb, as if somebody were right above me, setting off an extremely bright flash right in my eyes. It was bright enough that it would wake me up, and some nights it would happen once, and sometimes it seemed like it happened all night long. Eventually, it progressed to include an insistent tap-tap between my shoulder blades. Usually that one would happen right as I was starting to fall asleep. Tap-tap, not violent, firm, but gentle, like somebody's waking you up because it's time to go to school. I still get that one sometimes. It happened to me just a couple of days ago. Having your sleep constantly disrupted, as I'm sure many of you already know, is the most irritating fucking thing that bleeds over into your daytime life. Sleep deprivation has physical effects. It makes you sluggish, jumpy, loopy, clumsy, suggestible. You want to know something interesting that I learned? Of course you do. You know who uses flashing lights and other methods to disturb sleep on purpose so as to torture people into never getting a full restful sleep cycle? Cults psyops you know why because it makes a person more susceptible to mind control eventually i experienced full-blown sleep paralysis and by sleep paralysis i specifically mean the reoccurring feeling of being awake but paralyzed unable to move my body while a malignant presence loomed over me in my case it also felt as if the room were sort of vibrating or coming towards me and receding out if that makes sense and yes my sleep paralysis booger was a shadow person with a hat most of the time was it so because that's just what the fuck these particular things look like or was it my brain expecting that form after reading so much over the years about sleep paralysis and shadow people i think i know we're gonna have a whole episode i promise whatever Those motherfuckers, that phenomenon, regardless of cause, is very unsettling. In years and years of studying it, I had never personally experienced it before this. I expected that it was hypnagogic sleep, natural causes, abnormal brain activity. And I still think that that's likely. But what causes that abnormal brain activity? Why do people having the abnormal brain activity, many people over a long span of years, report the same hallucinations? If you've never experienced that particular type of absolute pants, piss, and terror, nobody can adequately describe it to you. Lots of people over the years have talked to me about their sleep paralysis experiences, but still, I really did not comprehend how crazy it was until I felt it myself. It was a kind of terror that I've never experienced in real life, only during those moments of sleep paralysis. And holy shit, is that some abnormal brain activity. It took me a long time to get rid of the sleep paralysis. It was a real pain in my ass. Here's a tip, though. If you've got experience talking yourself down from a panic attack, you can talk yourself out of sleep paralysis. We are going to have a whole episode, I promise. And I've got some methods and some help for people who might be having this problem. So basically, I spent another two years of my life coping with life, dealing with illness and death and sadness, but also normal happiness and love and work and relationships and responsibilities. And I pretty much had to figure out how to rewire my whole brain in order to integrate the experiences I had had into some kind of way that wouldn't lead to Thorazine in my applesauce. I had talk therapy and medical and psychological assessments because I'm lucky and have insurance and was able to do that. I traveled to more haunted spots, more libraries, did more research. I visited historical sites. I looked at grainy film strips and read through binders full of excavation and site reports. I collected as much information in the form of personal and witness accounts from others that I possibly could. I did a variety of social experiments, both involving the devil's tramping ground and following the new rabbit holes that I discovered 
by my research and by others' statements about how the phenomenon had manifested in their lives, I spent a significant amount of time and energy writing a different book. The book that, for the past four episodes, I've been reading to you guys. That book, the representation and repository of my last fuck. I felt like my story about what I saw and experienced and how I got to the conclusions that I'm proposing about reality had to be so neatly and perfectly presented that you'd be able to visualize it and feel it. I imagined it like a self-published audiobook. I didn't want to lose any of my work. I wanted to talk in detail about my experiences. I wanted to do it richly enough that I could reach across the explanatory gap and grab you by the throat and drag you with me into the narrative so that you would be able to feel it. Because if you could feel it, then you might believe it. Here's the problem. Feelings don't prove shit. And in the grand scheme of things, feelings are inconsequential. And as I'm pretty sure we've already covered, belief is the enemy. Belief is the weapon that the phenomenon uses to obscure itself, its true nature. Belief is the drug that it hooks us on so as to get what it needs from us. I've seen it happen. I've seen it suck in a hardcore skeptic and recurgitate out a paranoid wreck of a contactee. I have written and rewritten the stories about what I felt and perceived working on that project and in its aftermath. I fell into the classic contactee trap, so obsessed with the story, the illusion, that I lost focus on the point, which is to uncover the truth. Formatting the story again so I could record it in episodic chunks, I realized I'm really starting to get sick of it. I didn't want to stretch it out and make it cute and try to tiptoe my story around anything that might violate someone's insistence on privacy. And then, right after I published the first episode, Z contacted me. They apologized for their behavior, and they told me that I could talk about whatever I wanted. They may be regretting that now, but I don't think that's a me problem. They also expressed interest in collaborating again, becoming part of my new ongoing project. I thought hard about it, the potential benefits of having somebody who I'd shared experiences with, who was willing to go back out and investigate these things with me. I also had annoying flashbacks to college when my nerdy ass used to do the entirety of a group project because I wanted my A and then everybody else would just put their names on it even though they'd done jack shit of the work. Perhaps that is unfair. Z did suffer a lot of crazy and terrifying shit because of the Devil Names Project. But, in talking to them more, I realized that they were still obsessing over the same paranoid things they were obsessing over five years ago, and that I just didn't have the patience or the desire to entertain that, that doing so might even be completely irresponsible and lead to Z being in danger. Also, I'm tired of ruminating about the events. When I edit the chapters, it's like listening to somebody tell you in real detail about this weird dream that they had that's really interesting to them, but really boring to you. It no longer feels like catharsis. I understand the relief that other people probably get by confessing their sins to me and then running off, but I'd rather listen to other people's confessions than to keep crafting my own. The story... My story, my feelings about it, my feelings about how certain other people might feel about it, my last fuck, in the writing world they call it murdering your darlings. We are going to revisit the myths and folklore of the southeastern Native Americans and the significance of mound structures and all of that for sure. I've already presented in these episodes a big chunk of my thesis, and I'm going to continue to expand on it. Some of the why of how I got there, the feelings and events, I'm just, I'm giving the axe to. We're jumping ahead to the end, to the middle. Also, I asked for listener stories, but I did not expect to get any feedback so fast. I figured I'd have some for the back half if I was lucky, but some of y'all have come in real clutch with that. In fact, I have a very haunting story to share with you guys that was sent to me by an anonymous person in the state of Tennessee. I'm going to read it to y'all just like they sent it to me, and maybe it'll hit y'all just as creepy as it did me. 
Anonymous in Tennessee says, I dated a man for a little while who had terrible sleep problems. He was pretty upfront and open in talking about it. Apparently, it was a genetic thing, like chronic insomnia ran in his family. He had to take special supplements for it, and he really struggled with being able to fall asleep and stay asleep. According to him, he'd once gone without sleeping for almost two weeks, which resulted in him needing to be sedated. He was a sweet guy. It wasn't like he was unstable. He just had to take sleep-inducing medication and practice pretty strict sleep hygiene. It wasn't a big deal to me staying over at first. But after a while, when I slept at his place, I would have a hard time sleeping too. Part of it was his bedroom was just very different from mine. He had this big box fan by the bed that he insisted needed to be on at all times because he needed the white noise to sleep. There was a bright nightlight in the hallway that shined in the door and got in my eyes. It was just uncomfortable and I would toss and turn and then when I would finally doze off, I would have this reoccurring dream that something was trying to crawl into the bed with us, that this man was crawling into the room on the floor and then insistently trying to crawl up into the bed. The man was very skinny, skeletal almost. He was wrapped up all over in what looked like an old, dirty, white sheet that was tied with white string. I couldn't see his face, just the outline of the mouth moving, covered by the fabric. He was damp, like he or his wrappings had been soaking in liquid. He would just keep trying to pull himself up on my side of the bed. It would feel like I had to constantly push him down and fight him off, and it made me toss and turn, and a lot of the time, I'd wake up feeling really disoriented, and I would just get up and go out into the living room and sleep on the couch out there. The guy started to be kind of bothered, though, when he would come out and find me sleeping on the couch. He kept asking me what was wrong, and I kept telling him that it wasn't personal. It was just that I had a hard time falling asleep in his room. I didn't tell him about the dreams at first. I don't know why. One night, we'd kind of been drinking, and he brought it up, me sleeping on the couch, and I finally told him, when I sleep in your room, I have this dream that this man, all wrapped up in wet cloth, is trying to climb up into the bed with us. He seemed really upset and freaked out by that. He got really flushed, and his face, it was like he recognized what I was talking about, like he was scared, but he wouldn't talk to me about it at all. That was the last night I stayed over there, and I ended up just on the couch to start with instead of even trying to go sleep in his room. We broke up right after that, and we lost touch. It was like this weird wall came down between us that night. I know it was just dreams. It wasn't the reason we broke up. There was other stuff. And I am a rational person, and so was he. We had both grown up in toxic, fanatical churches as kids. That was something we had in common. We had both escaped that, and we led rational lives and held rational beliefs. It made me think about my grandparents, though, and the church I grew up in, Pentecostal holiness, and the things they used to teach us about demons and spiritual warfare. I heard the episode of Dead Girls Talking where you talked about etheric parasites because my friend made me listen to it on a road trip. I looked you up because I figured you would appreciate this story. I've never talked about it before. Rationally, I know how it sounds, but I felt so clearly that I was just in that thing's way. It was trying to get to him, not even in a threatening way, more like a pet trying to climb up in bed with its master. I don't know what it would have done if it did get in the bed. I never dreamed that part. I can't explain any of it. When we were first getting together, he used to tell me he slept better with me in the bed with him, but I figured that was just a cute line. Maybe this will entertain somebody or help somebody, as you say. It's one of the strangest experiences I've ever had, and it does feel good to write it out and share it. 
I should add that normally I don't have problems sleeping, and I only rarely remember my dreams. I have not had any problems sleeping since then, and I haven't dreamed of that man or anything like that either. Thank you, listener, for this submission, Anonymous in Tennessee. This weird variation on the bedroom invader really got my attention. We're going to be devoting quite a bit of time in future episodes to discussing, as I said, sleep paralysis, but also how sleep itself works and how the brain works and the varieties of sleep disorders that can be thought to at least partially explain all of the weird types of experiences people have around sleep. I can't help but wonder, though, did this guy have some kind of, for want of a better term, etheric parasite Was it the reason that he couldn't sleep? Was his hostile reaction to being told about it the result of skepticism or childhood trauma or recognition of the creature that was being described? Was it a dream that Anonymous was having? Or was something trying to get up in the bed with this guy? Can you fucking imagine you're the little spoon for something that crawled out of hell's morgue and you don't even know it? Tennessee... If you're out here listening to this, I need to know, was there a mirror in this guy's room? Just the way you describe the light coming in indistinct from the other room and the box fan, it makes me think there's a thing that you can do all by yourself at your very own house if you want to experiment with altered perception at your own risk. Of course, it's pretty trippy and it's also pretty simple. You can make a psychomantium. Really, all you need is a dark place, a chair, a mirror, and a dim, indirect light source. Some people, though, like to spice it up with a box fan or some other kind of white noise, either running out of sight or obscuring the light so that it kind of flickers. Sometimes the mirror's tilted to reflect only the darkness, and sometimes it's right in front of you. And if you sit and stare into the mirror long enough, especially if you're staring at your own reflection, you will most likely hallucinate. Scientific explanation best we can come up with, your brain gets bored with looking at your dumb face for so long, and it starts making stuff up to entertain itself. But people often see their dead relatives when they do this, or monsters or creepy faces which begs the question what the fuck brain i get the assertion that the brain is bored but then why not hallucinate flowers or kitties or fireworks why creepy faces why default to monsters so what do you guys think could the conditions of an unfamiliar bedroom cause a person to have a particular type of hallucination Can entities attach themselves to people or at least follow people, maybe drain something from them, maybe just out of boredom? I was at a paranormal conference years ago and this sweet but absolutely bonkers girl followed me around all weekend insisting that I was accompanied by the spirit of a little girl who died in a house fire. She was very annoyed that I couldn't see the ghost. She kept pointing it out like, Allegedly, it was standing behind me while I was working the merch table and she kind of cornered me there and that's how the whole thing started. So I asked her, is it is it trying to give me a message? She said, no, it's just following you around. Obviously, I did not have a little girl's ghost follow me around that I couldn't see, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. But at the end of the weekend, this girl asked me if she could take the ghost away with her because she felt like she could give it a better home. And I said, please, by all means, do that. Yes. And supposedly she did. Hell, I don't know. It's a disconcerting thought. I figured out after maybe a year to eliminate sleep paralysis from my own life. And for a long time after that, I continued to have the flashbulb and the other things. But I didn't have sleep paralysis for a long time. I had a good long stretch and I thought, I've conquered this problem. Then I went to visit Atlanta with some friends and I stayed in a guest room located in the basement of my friend's aunt's house. It was a nice room, but it had absolutely no windows. And directly across from the bed was one of those giant folding closet doors that are mirrors. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I woke up sometime in the night in that room with the feeling that I was having sleep paralysis 
immediately I started making myself focus on the stuff that we're going to talk about in the upcoming episodes, things that would normally work for me to ease that fear feeling, that room vibration feeling, and eventually allow my body to be relaxed enough to no longer be paralyzed. But this time, none of that stuff worked. Instead, it started seeming like there was a bright flashing strobe light coming out of the mirror. I couldn't not look at it. I was paralyzed. I could not even wiggle my big toe. And out of the mirror came these things. They looked like gingerbread men filled with TV static. On another podcast that I used to do, Dead Girls Talking, we had a listener call in show and we had somebody call in who was reporting an encounter with a very similar entity. There are multiple accounts out there. And I'm not even going to say gingerbread men. More like that cutout of a dude shape from the bathroom door. And there were several of them. They marched out of the mirror and surrounded the bed that I was in. The way that they walked and moved was grotesquely cartoonish. I I can't. I mean, explanatory gap. I just, I, I, all I'll say is fuck those guys. They were fucking awful. There's some info out there pointing towards the idea that just as the brain likes to seize patterns and fill in information, it also likes, actually is wired on an evolutionary level to eliminate, ignore, and cover information. I don't know what came out of that mirror, if static gingerbread man is just their look, or if they were my brain's way of covering up what was really there, a screen memory. Whatever, I was frozen, staring at him all around me, and I was so completely paralyzed and completely terrified, and I was trying to make noise, but I could not. I felt a sharp pain in the top of my right wrist, and it felt like being stuck with a long needle. And then they picked me up. Actually, it felt like they levitated me up. They didn't touch me, but I rose. And then there was a bright white light in front of my eyes, and then I don't remember. I woke up the next morning on the couch in the den. I had the blanket and pillow from the bed with me. The kids were playing in there and they wanted to know why I was sleeping on the couch. And I told them that I had a bad dream and I guess I came out there because of it, though I did not remember doing that at all. It's just hypnagogic sleep, abnormal brain activity, except in the shower, I saw that on the top of my right hand, where I had felt the sting of a needle... I had a little red scab, like a little drop of blood oozing from a tiny puncture wound. I mean, maybe a bug bit me. It was fucking creepy, though, and the idea of it as anything but a nightmare made me feel very uncomfortable and gross. Over time, that little puncture healed into a tiny blue-black mark. It's a thing that can happen with scars, especially puncture wounds, apparently. They can turn blue or black like that, though it's never happened to me with any other puncture wound I've ever had. I've tried bleaching it, applying scar gel to it. It just, it doesn't go away. Yes, I still have it. Yes, you can see it. If you meet me in person, I will happily show it to you. No, I don't think it's an alien implant or any X-Files shit like that. It's just information, a story, full disclosure. It only happened that one time in that one room, and I don't ever, ever sleep in windowless rooms, especially not windowless rooms with big mirrors. The idea of something coming into my room and taking me somewhere, unconscious, paralyzed, whatever, and doing something, anything to me, well, that's a long-running, deep-seated, almost universal human terror, isn't it? One we have variously ascribed to the Fae, the Devil, and the Aliens. The realm of fiction, of folklore, just scary stories. We can't entertain it too hard because the implied helplessness, the vulnerability, is very uncomfortable. But something's out there happening to people, and we're trying to figure out what it is. My own personal little confessional interactive social experiment working through my trauma for science. Don't be scared. Scared is the last thing you want to be. Don't for one second believe that something can come into your bedroom. Something you can't see. 
something your brain can't even process, so it slaps a sticker over it to keep from having to perceive it. That's crazy talk, isn't it? Isn't it? I found this little gem of a fable on the internet, unattributed. So if you know who wrote it, please do let me know. I'd like to ask them some questions. Anyhow, Eldritch Madness. An ant doesn't start babbling when they see a circuit board. They find it strange. To them, it's a landscape of strange angles and humming monoliths. They may be scared, but that's not madness. Madness comes when the ant, for a moment, can see as a human does. It understands those markings are words, symbols with meaning, like a pheromone, but infinitely more complex. It can travel unimaginable distances to lands unlike anything it has seen before. It knows of mirth, embarrassment, love, concepts unimaginable before this moment. And then, it's an ant again. Echoes of things it cannot comprehend swirl around in its mind. It cannot make use of this knowledge, but still it remembers. How is it supposed to return to its life? The more the ant saw, the harder it is for it to forget. It needs to see it again, understand again. It will do anything to show others, to show itself. Nothing else in this tiny world matters. And this is madness. So what do you guys think? Are we ants? Are we cattle? I want to know your opinion. I want your stories. I want to know what you know. All the information, please email to rowwantstoknow at gmail.com. I apologize that it took so long to record this. Aren't we all overcome by events sometimes? The pollening is upon us here in North Carolina, so if my voice sounds croaky, it's because I can't breathe because the plants are fucking. I'm doing my best. Part of the fuck that I have just barbecued was concern over how honest I could and should be for the sake of my own safety. But isn't safety an illusion anyway? If you're enjoying this content, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing because it helps me grow and reach a broader audience. I'd say check us out on Facebook, but they've restricted the podcast page because of a hilarious Ed Gein meme I posted a year ago. So instead, I'll offer the opinion that social media is a dumpster fire and your time would be better spent reading, listening to podcasts, or interrogating everyone around you about the weirdest thing that's ever happened to them. Come on, be that guy at the function. Do it. Tell me about it. Do it for science. Whether you do it or don't do it. Till next time. Question everything, including me.